Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Ben Kiernan on the show, and we'll be talking about his book, Blood and Soil, A World History of Genocide and Extermination from Sparta to Darfur. Uh, You might know that chimpanzees kill each other, Uh, So do lots of animals. But only humans, homo sapiens, engage in mass slaughter of their own kind, at least as far as I know. There may be exceptions. This is a curious thing, and it may be one of the things that we call uniquely human. I think we should find this disturbing. And it does raise the question as to whether this is part of our nature or it is some sort of historical artifact. Having read Ben's terrific book, I can tell you that I think it's a little bit of both. Genocide is a regular event in human history, and this would suggest that it is not a historical artifact, but that it is, in fact, something in our nature. On the other hand, there are conditions which trigger it, and they are under our control. And Ben does a good job in the book of describing, at least in modern times, what those conditions have been. I really enjoyed talking to Ben today, and I think that you'll enjoy the rather sobering interview. Here it is. Hi, Ben. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Very well, thank you. Have you uh, did you guys have the huge blizzard there in New Haven? Yes, we've had uh, a, a big snowfall, but it's sunny now and uh, it's melting. It looks good out there. Yeah, we always uh, here in the Midwest we uh, we think that you people on the East Coast are wimps. That's that's basically the word. <laughs> I should tell our listeners that we're talking to Ben Kiernan today, and we'll be discussing his book, uh, really terrific book. Um, Blood and Soil, A World History of Genocide and Extermination from uh, Sparta to Darfur. Uh, I uh, read it with rapt attention, and um, I can tell you that it is a sobering read. Um, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, an, it's, an import, it's an important book, but um, you know, some, of it, some of the material – actually, it's, it's funny because I, uh, I, I teach a class on military history where I show films, and sometimes I tell the students, you know, if you'd like to leave the room, you can because this is going to be very disturbing. Uh, and there's some things in it that are disturbing, but necessarily so. There's no way to tell the story without including a lot of those details. So we should congratulate Ben on writing the book. So, Ben, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you went to school, where you grew up, and uh, how you became interested in these things. Yes, I was uh, born and educated in Australia, and both my degrees are in Southeast Asian history. So uh, that was the region of the world that was uh, coming into Australian consciousness when I was an undergraduate. Uh, the Vietnam War was raging and also the uh, issue of Australia's uh, treatment of its Aboriginal population uh, was also uh, coming to public attention. And the uh, universities were uh, full of discussion about uh, Australia's relations with Southeast Asia, with Vietnam, and uh, what was uh, a fair way for Australia to um, make 
uh, make good the uh, past mistreatment of uh, the Australian Aborigines. And the uh, first uh, interest that I that I took in my PhD dissertation was uh, Cambodian history, and uh, I had visited Southeast Asia and visited uh, East Timor as an undergraduate, and I began working on a PhD in 1978 on uh, the colonial regime of the French in uh, in Cambodia, and uh, at that time the Khmer Rouge were in power, and it was not possible to visit the country or work in the archives there. Uh, so I began to do some research in France in the colonial archives and found that uh, a French scholar had uh, just almost completed a PhD dissertation on the colonial period, and I switched my topic uh, to working on the Khmer Rouge regime and its rise to power. Mm-hmm. So my uh, PhD dissertation was called How Pol Pot Came to Power, mm-hmm. which I completed in uh, Monash University in 1983. Mm-hmm. And then I went on to write uh, a second book called The Pol Pot Regime, which was what the Khmer Rouge did when they were in power from 1975 to 79, and uh, came to the U.S. in 1990, uh, and uh, continued to work on that. I crimes of the Khmer Rouge in, mm-hmm. that, in that period in the late 70s called mm-hmm. the Cambodian Genocide Program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we should express our thanks to the um, Australian educational system for having the uh, foresight to look into these Southeast Asian affairs. Of course, here in the United States, we were ca- caught almost completely unawares uh, even after we were in Vietnam. We really didn't know what we were doing. But So k- kudos to your advisors or um, or whomever pushed you in that direction, or, or to yourself for pushing yourself in that direction. Well, Australia really does have a, uh, a terrific level of scholarship on Asia, particularly on Southeast Asia, but China as well. Uh-huh. I talked to David Day, and actually uh, he, you may know him and his work. He, uh, he also mentioned the Vietnam War as kind of a catalyst for this. Many people forget that the Australians were involved in the Vietnam War. I don't know. Americans only think that Americans were involved. But, no, uh, um, eight thousand uh, Australians served there, and four hundred were killed. Yeah, so it was a, it was an important thing. I mean, the same is true of South Korea. South Korea was also there, and I, people forget that too. So it was right. an important catalyst. Well, let me ask you this: What was it like as a historian to kind of be in uh, Southeast Asia, and particularly, um, I'll call it Cambodia for these purposes, mm-hmm. to be uh, studying Cambodia while a genocide was? going on. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about that experience. It must have been very strange to realize that you were in the middle of something which was really world historical. Well, at first I didn't realize uh, what was going on at all. It was uh, not possible to visit there, and and I really uh, misunderstood the nature of the Khmer Rouge regime at first before I began my graduate studies. And uh, it it took a while for for me to work out that the Khmer Rouge regime was uh, was in fact a, a killer regime that was uh, on a genocidal track. And uh, my first newspaper article I published about that was called Why Has Kampuchea Gone to Pot? But that was in the mm-hmm. last year of the Khmer Rouge regime. Mm-hmm. And uh, I visited there in 1980, uh, two years later, mm-hmm. and spent uh, four months traveling around and interviewing people about what had happened to them after interviewing uh, about 100 Cambodian refugees in France and Mm -hmm. uh, got a much clearer idea uh, from 1978 what was happening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. So um, 
it, it must have been quite a shock to you to learn what had actually happened. Uh, yes, uh, it certainly was not what uh, the end of the war uh, was expected to bring. The uh, many Cambodians expected the war uh, to end, and uh, whatever happened couldn't be worse. But indeed, the Khmer Rouge regime uh, was worse than. Uh, the war, which had itself been devastating, the war of, mm -hmm. th that was raging in Vietnam, spilled over into Cambodia, uh, especially after 1970 when um, all sides in the Vietnam War just crashed across the border and mm -hmm. the country became engulfed in a massive uh, era of destruction, mm -hmm. and, uh, particularly uh, both sides of the uh, Vietnamese Civil War and uh, most of all, the United States uh, B-52 bombardment, mm -hmm. which uh, spread right across the country mm -hmm. from 1970 to 73 mm -hmm. and uh, killed large numbers of people. And mm -hmm. uh, the Khmer Rouge flourished in a small insurgent group of several thousand in 1969, grew to more than 200,000 troops and militia by 1973 when the U.S. Congress ordered a halt to the bombing, mm -hmm. and the Khmer Rouge had used the bombing as a propaganda recruitment tool to uh, gain large numbers of followers whom they armed and turned against the government of Cambodia uh, at that time. Mm -hmm. And so people did hope, uh, as I did, that the war, when it ended, would uh, would be an end to the violence. But in fact, uh, the Khmer Rouge slowly uh, escalated the violence in the four years that they were in power, and it was uh, worse in 1978 than it was when they first took power in 1975. Yeah. Um, before we go on to talk about the book, I want to mention one other thing, because it is something that historians do, but I think most people who read history, and this is especially professional historians do, uh, that most people who read history don't realize, and that is both create and protect archives, and um, you've done a lot of that with this documentation um, project. Maybe you could talk just a little bit about that. Yes. Um, one of the uh, things that people were uh, unprepared for as well uh, while the Khmer Rouge were in power and even uh, after their overthrow was that they would have amassed a large archive of primary documents, a lot of paperwork. And uh, that's what they did, but uh, much of it was lost. However, in uh, 1996, uh, the Cambodian Genocide Program at Yale uh, was able to locate the secret police archives of the Khmer Rouge regime. And uh, these had lain uh, unexposed for uh, nearly 20 years, mm -hmm. and they contain um, 100,000 pages or so of um, highly probative uh, confidential documents uh, to and from Pol Pot, for instance, and also his top uh, colleagues in the Khmer Rouge regime, mm -hmm. uh, explaining for the outside world the, or, or revealing, documenting exactly what they had done, mm -hmm. lists of the names of people to be arrested, orders to arrest them, uh, to track them down, and so on, large numbers of, of uh, ledgers of the names of prisoners who were to be killed, mm -hmm. and uh, in one case, um, a list is signed by the prison commander uh, saying, kill them all. Mm -hmm. uh, some of this information
information did come out. The prison records came out rather quickly in 1979 and 80, but the much higher level security force archives of the Pol Pot regime were left behind by the Khmer Rouge in 79, and uh, we were only able to find them in 96. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they will be now hopefully used extensively in the tribunal that's been established in Cambodia with the UN's support to uh, judge the crimes of not only the prison commander in question, but also high-level members of the Pol Pot regime. Pol Pot died in 98, but his deputy, Nguyen Chia, is in, in jail awaiting trial, as is the head of state of the Khmer Rouge regime, uh, Kyu Sampan. The deputy prime minister, Yang Tseri, and Yang Tseri, his wife, who was also a member of the cabinet of the Khmer Rouge. Mm-hmm. They're all in jail awaiting trial. It's been announced by the UN that they will be tried with genocide. Mm-hmm. genocide. So what is the disposition of the archive now? It's um, the original uh, copies, uh, which we found in 96, uh, have been um, stored at the Documentation Center of Cambodia in Phnom Penh, which was an NGO that I established as the field office of the Cambodian Genocide Program. And in 1997, it became an independent Cambodian institution, which through uh, the Cambodian Genocide Program at Yale, we continued to fund uh, until 2001, but it's now uh, independent and self-supporting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have, uh, have I was going to say, have efforts been made to publish the documents? Well, a lot of them are on our website of the Cambodian Genocide Program, uh, and others have been uh, translated, but I think a lot of them are currently being studied by the uh, UN uh, Tribunal, the Cambodia Joint Tribunal with UN Support that is preparing the case for trial. Mm-hmm. I see. Is there a plan to publish them all eventually? Uh, well, it's 100,000 pages. It's, it, it's all been microfilmed by Yale University's uh, Sterling Library, and copies are available, but it's uh, 486 reels. Yeah, yeah. No, it's actually, I was reading a book just the other day on um, the military tribunals that were conducted uh, uh, not uh, – at not, not what we call the Nuremberg trials, but this what we call the subsequent trials. Mm-hmm. And uh, a woman who I'm going to interview in a few weeks uh, went through them, and she described the amount of documentation. And it is truly formidable. I, it's a it's a lot of, and I'm saying that as somebody that was trained as a kind of medieval historian. So you can spend most of your career looking at six documents. Right. <laughs> so we have a little bit different problem than you guys do. Um, let me uh, let, let me let me first of all just congratulate you for that work because it's really terrific, and people should know that historians are often involved in the archiving of uh, of historical documentation and the, the presentation and preservation of it. And um, uh, your case, I you know I'm very envy um, you know envious is not quite the right word. Uh, I um, I respect the challenge, and I'm really glad that you rose to it because you have now you and your colleagues have uh, saved this primary documentation for scholars to study for. Uh, let's hope centuries uh, to come so that these things won't be forgotten. Um, I think it's important to, to recognize that for what it is. But I know lots of historians who do this sort of work. Uh, they try to create archives as they do their research. So anyway, I just wanted to, to mention that because I knew about the project. So why don't we talk about the book itself? Um, uh, how did you come to write it? Why did you write the book? Um, in the 1980s, uh, as I was writing the Pol Pot regime book, I began to think about comparisons with other cases of mass murder or genocide, 
and I started to research uh, the Armenian genocide, uh, which was one of the major genocides of the 20th century and was a case that uh, really put the concept of genocide uh, into uh, international uh, academic discussion uh, rather than focusing uh, on the Holocaust and uh, the uh, Nazi genocide. Uh, the Armenian genocide was another case uh, nearly as clear-cut uh, as uh, the Holocaust. And it was uh, Armenian scholars and Jewish scholars working together, uh, as well as others, who uh, put together a field known as genocide studies now, uh, which is a comparative field that uh, attempts to look at uh, various cases of genocide to see, in my view, I think the essential thing is to see what's essential about genocide, what occurs in every case. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Armenian genocide was the, the first uh, major case of the, of the 20th century that, that I looked at, apart from the Holocaust, in comparison with Cambodia. But I had in the back of my mind also uh, the experience of East Timor under Indonesian rule, uh, where a similar proportion, about a fifth of the population, um, died in East Timor under Indonesian rule at the same time, or at least beginning at the same time as the Khmer Rouge genocide, that is, in, in 1975, mm -hmm. and also uh, the experience of uh, Aboriginal groups in Australia, some of whom suffered genocidal massacres in the 19th century. Uh, and so I began to look at a number of these cases uh, in the late 80s and early 90s and uh, wrote a comparison of Pol Pot as leader of the Khmer Rouge genocide uh, and Enver Pasha, one of the uh, leading perpetrators of the Armenian genocide. And uh, it slowly uh, became an important part of my work, not just writing about Cambodia and, and documenting what had happened there, but to see what was what were the elements of it that uh, it had in common with other cases of genocide, including the Holocaust. Um, and eventually the project grew into a global attempt to study uh, a large number of cases uh, in history from earliest times to the present, um, including the um, Roman uh, genocide in Carthage in 146 BC. And the uh, upshot of it all was that a number of uh, features were obviously different in every case, uh, and uh, yet there were still some striking similarities. Before we come to and, those, let me ask you uh, a preliminary question that I think um, many of the listeners will be uh, interested in, and it really is one of the challenges of any initial research project, and you deal with it in the book uh, kind of bravely, I think, because wading into these terminological waters can often be frustrating for, I think, for especially for historians who basically just want to get that out of the way and move mm -hmm. on to the facts. What what exactly is the history of this notion of genocide, and uh, what, what does it mean, or how has it meant different things to different people? I'm not quite sure how to phrase this question. <laughs> well, the, the word genocide was coined only in World War II by Raphael Lemkin, who was a Polish Jewish jurist who had escaped Nazi rule in Poland and wrote a book called Axis Rule in Occupied Europe uh, in 19, published in 1944, but in the preface dated uh, 1943, he coined the term genocide uh, to describe the destruction of a, of a national, uh, racial, or ethnic, or religious group. 
he had already been active in the 1930s in uh, a campaign to draw attention to uh, uh, the crimes against the Armenians in World War One uh, at the hands of the Young Turk regime during the Ottoman Empire. So he was aware of what had happened and that there needed to be a legal sanction against um, these kinds of crimes. Uh, and uh, there was the term extermination, which existed at that time, uh, which had come to mean something similar, uh, attempt to annihilate uh, a group. Uh, but as a result of the 1948 Genocide Convention, which the UN adopted at Lemkin's urging after the Holocaust, uh, the word genocide came to mean specifically attempts to um, destroy in whole or in part an ethnic, national, racial or religious group. Uh, and it had to be with the intent to destroy such a group. Mm -hmm. uh, so the Genocide Convention requires not just certain acts like killing members of the group, but also proof of the intent. Mm -hmm. The word extermination still is used in international law, but it doesn't require proof of the intent. Extermination is a crime against humanity, and proof of the acts committed by the perpetrator, including killing members of the group, is sufficient to prove uh, extermination uh, in whole or in part. Mm -hmm. And uh, the proof of the intent to destroy a group as such is not, uh, is not required. So in, extermination is a much older word uh, which continues to have a legal meaning. Mm -hmm. It also covers political or social groups which the Genocide Convention does not. Mm -hmm. So there really now are two separate uh, legal terms, extermination and genocide, mm -hmm. uh, which genocide is the, the most difficult to prove. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. Yes, no. Uh, the, the events that are happening in Darfur uh, bring all of this to mind because um, we don't seem to know what we want to call it. Uh, it seems by the criteria you laid out, it clearly is genocide, but I, I won't... Um, I won't take an official New Books in History stand on that issue right the, here. But the, the, um, lawyers are, the lawyers are debating that now, um, and some are, are quite clearly saying it's genocide. Others say it could be, but the evidence is not yet in about intent, mm -hmm. uh, but they're not ruling out that it constitutes genocide. Yeah, I see. So uh, let's talk about those. Um, well, let me let me ask a different question before we talk about the common elements uh, and the triggers, so to say, of uh of genocide. Um, one of the things that you had to do in this book was go back in uh, distant history, uh, that is uh, prior to, let's say, 500 years ago, and to look for instances that looked sort of genocidal, that wouldn't have been identified as such. They might have been called exterminations or, or something like this. Uh, how did you go about doing that? Well, um, I found the uh, discussion in uh, the early books about genocide studies that began to appear in the 1980s, uh, Leo Cooper, a sociologist, mm -hmm. one of the founders of the field, uh, Frank Chalk, a historian at um, Concordia University in Montreal, Helen Fine, another sociologist, uh, tended uh, to uh, consider what happened um, under the Roman destruction of Carthage to be genocide. And I found not only was that uh, fairly well documented, but it was also referred to 
in much later cases. And so the existence of ancient genocides or classical genocides like uh, the Roman destruction of Carthage was important in its own right as a case of genocide, but also in the way it was remembered. And so Hitler, for instance, described the Roman destruction of Carthage as the, quote, execution of a people through its own deserts. Mm -hmm. And so Hitler described uh, Roman history as the best mentor for all time. He he saw it as a model, a precedent for doing uh, what Hitler himself planned to do to the Jews. And the uh, importance of this uh, fetish of antiquity, this sort of search for ancient models and somehow legitimacy in ancient cases of genocide uh, was an important element, I found, of more recent cases, uh, not just in the 20th century, but even in the early modern period. Uh, people who were committing genocide or planned to do it would legitimize their actions by uh, resort to ancient precedents, whether it be classical cases or even biblical precedents uh, that talked about the destruction of um, peoples in uh, ancient Canaan uh, in the Bible, the Amorites and other cases like that, which uh, may not even have occurred. Uh, we don't have as much evidence about it as we do for the Roman destruction of Carthage, but it was certainly considered a precedent that was able to legitimize uh, perpetrators thought what they had in mind. And so the, I found that the, uh, the cult of antiquity uh, is there in many cases of genocide where people seem to think that they can do it because it's been done before, mm -hmm. especially in very ancient times. I think it's important uh, to... Well, how to put this? Uh, I think it's important to establish or not establish, uh, to think a little bit about uh, the frequency with which genocides uh, under a broad definition may or may not have occurred uh, mm -hmm. throughout the 180,000 years of Homo sapien history because it, it gets to an important question as to whether genocide is in us or it is created by historical circumstance. And and I don't really know the answer to that question, but uh, you know, had we better information about what had occurred, let's say, 150,000 years ago or 100,000 years ago, we don't have any really, uh, then we might be able to answer that question. But I think I, th I think it is an I think it is an important one to ask um, because one of the yeah one of the things I want to I think that's important to avoid is the notion that and because I I guess I'll I'll, I'll take a stand here is that I I don't I don't th I think there may be something mod modern about modern genocides but I don't think genocides themselves are particularly modern. Um, I think that's the, the weight of the evidence would suggest that is true. Yes, there is something I, I, in us that does this thing. I would agree with that. I wouldn't say, however, that it was in us or it was particularly a human response to mm -hmm. uh, certain challenges. I, I uh, wrote the book about the ideology of perpetrators, that what makes them do it. But I think it's also important to bear in mind that Genocide is usually a conspiracy conducted in secret by a small number of people who often are able to carry it out by setting up a situation of conflict where it's difficult for even their own foot soldiers to avoid mm -hmm. uh, a massive violence and, and that under orders they uh, often do carry it out. Mm -hmm. But the initiative is always coming from a small group of highly placed uh, plotters who uh, have a, an idea in mind long before uh, it occurs to the foot soldiers that mm -hmm. they they want to carry it out. And mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. I think also it's important to bear in mind, and I tried to 
include cases of this in the book of people who stood up and opposed it. Mm-hmm. And so every time uh, Cato got up in the Roman Senate and called for the destruction of Carthage, his famous words, Carthage must be destroyed, Delenda est Carthago, uh, his opponent, Scipio Nasica, would stand up in reply and say Carthage must be allowed to exist mm-hmm. every time he made a speech. And so there was always a challenge, and it was Cato who came out on top and won the debate in the Senate, but it wasn't easy. It wasn't a natural thing to do for Rome to destroy Carthage. It was uh, uh, deeply controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did manage to keep it secret uh, from the Roman soldiers because they were afraid that uh, they would have had to be afraid that the word would leak out with uh, deserters crossing the lines on both sides. The Carthaginians would have found out, and the Roman conspiracy was to get them to disarm themselves voluntarily under threat from Rome, which the Carthaginians then did and handed over all their weapons. And only then Mm -hmm. did Rome announce, having kept it a secret all along, that they planned to destroy the city. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that led to the massive violence when the Carthaginians knew that they uh, were going to be uh, forcibly uh, evicted from their city and fought back. I mean, I think one one thing, and you do point that out in the book as well, that there is a technological moment here, and that is the sense in which before, um, let's just uh, take a kind of arbitrary moment like gunpowder weapons uh, and, and, and massive armies uh, right. cobbled together by states. It was actually very difficult to kill extraordinarily large groups of people. It could be done, but it had to be done in a very personal way. And and that's difficult. Yeah, yeah, and it usually involved a, a setup so that the um, the Roman soldiers were surrounding the city, waiting till Carthage disarmed itself, and then exactly. when the when the genocide was announced, uh, that was when the fight began. It was difficult for either side to avoid it after mm-hmm. it had been set up in that way by. Mm-hmm. So you've mentioned a couple things which are common to many genocides, and uh, one is this kind of conspiratorial nature that they are um, initiated by a small group of people that are not entirely open about what they were doing. Uh, and another one is this uh, notion of uh, precedence in classical antiquity or uh, in earlier times for uh, what had been done. What are some of the other elements um, that unite this kind of, um, I don't know what to call it, this genocidal context? Well, um, obviously, racial or religious hatred is a key one, and that's the point that is emphasized in the Genocide Convention. But there are other features that are not mentioned in the legal definition that uh, I wanted to describe in the book, and they include not just the uh, cult of antiquity, but also a a romantic agrarianism, the idea that uh, people who are not cultivating the land in a certain approved way are somehow not legitimate occupiers of that land. And uh, therefore, the uh, conquering group has the right to uh, kill them or drive them out and seize their land. And this goes, uh, in in many cases, applies to city populations, whether it be the Carthaginians or the Jews in the case of Nazi Germany. They were not... um, part of, uh, of Hitler's imagined agrarian Germany, uh, which he linked to its ancient past. So it's related to mm-hmm. the classical precedent that our ancestors were all peasants, we were a farming population and so on. And uh, so the anti-virulent anti-Semitism or the racial hatred combined with the 
uh, ancient model and with the agrarian ideology. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, of course, is uh, expansionism. It's a, a, a clear-cut case in, in the Nazi uh, example of genocide, but it's also there in nearly every other case. Uh, territorial expansionism, uh, conquering other territories and uh, accusing the populations who live there city populations or even hunter-gatherers or pastoralists who are not settled in cultivation or other agrarian pursuits uh, can be uh, killed and don't have the right to live because they are not uh, agrarian uh, farmers. Mm-hmm. And I found those four elements of racial religious hatred, territorial expansionism, romantic agrarianism and the cult of antiquity to be there in, in nearly every case. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe you could actually take us through some of these cases that we can begin in early modern times. Um, or actually, let's not even do that uh, because uh, one of the things I learned were, were um, that there were these um, really genocidal massacres in uh, in early modern um, Asia or, or, or Southeast Asia, is it? And, and I didn't know anything about these. Yeah, yeah East, East and Southeast Asia, for instance, in the 1590s, uh, the Japanese... Uh, uh, warlord of the time, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, who had just unified Japan, immediately set about conquering Korea with an aim to invade and conquer China as well. So it obviously an expansionist ideology fueled by the new discovery early in the 1500s of uh, muskets and the uh, in, in inclusion of uh, firearms in Japanese warfare made it extremely brutal. And the Koreans didn't have firearms, uh, and uh, so there was a uh, an order given out by Toyotomi Hideyoshi, uh, kill the Koreans one by one and empty the country, quote-unquote. And uh, he talked about uh, destroying entire provinces without leaving a thing behind. And the Japanese uh, invaders of Korea in the 1590s were extremely brutal, and they did uh, kill um, hundreds of thousands of, uh, of Koreans. And um, at the same time, their policy, at least at home, but also in Korea as well, was decidedly agrarian. And Hideyoshi's ideology was to keep farmers down on the land and uh, and if they engaged only in cultivation, as he put it, uh, they will prosper until eternity. And so the uh, vision of society that Hideyoshi had was uh, extremely agrarian. It was um, uh, a, a very vicious version of uh, the agrarianism that animated uh, some of the settlers in uh, the United States, uh, early colonial America, uh, before that in the English in colonial Ireland, they believed that the Irish didn't farm the land properly, uh, they didn't even occupy it, and that the land was free to be taken over by English farmers who had their own methods of cultivation, which were the uh, original settlers considered to be the only proper means of using the land. And uh, they were legitimately uh, authorized, they thought, to uh, to kill the Irish who objected, uh, and later Native Americans who uh, uh, were not recognized as uh, occupants of the land either, but rather as uh, wild beasts who merely roamed over the land, as one of them put it. Mm-hmm. And of course, for some of the massacres of um, Native Americans, uh, the killers did uh, resort to ancient precedents, uh, including biblical precedent. Uh, here in Connecticut in 1637, when uh, English settlers uh, from Massachusetts and Hartford, Connecticut, uh, massacred uh, 600 or so 
uh, people, men, women, and children in an attack uh, in less than two hours. Uh, one of the perpetrators said, I would refer you to David's war. We had adequate uh, precedent from the scriptures for our undertakings. And so he was uh, justifying the massacre on the basis of um, the biblical account of David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. I see. So I, I, I see just what you're saying about the uh, agrarianism, which is a, a, and colonialism, I would call it, which is um, common to these uh, early modern genocides. And the ones that you mentioned in the book are um, the Spanish conquest of the New World, for example, right. and uh, and these uh, the, the East Asian massacres, both, both the one in Korea and, uh, and if I recall, there's one in Southeast Asia as well. Several, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, these uh, 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 once we move into more modern times, though, how is this? Um, how, how are these elements reflected in, uh, I guess, more modern genocides that, that the listeners might be more familiar with? Yeah, the um, obviously expansionism is a, is a more more um, a clear cut case of expansionism occurs in both World War One and in World War Two. In the case of the Armenian genocide, uh, the Young Turk ideologists uh, had in mind uh, incorporating all of the Turkic speaking peoples and territories into a, a vast empire from Montenegro to Beijing, as one of them called it. They, uh, so they, they had a vision of, of uh, a legitimate uh, vast Turkic uh, empire based on ethnic uh, Turkic-speaking uh, residents uh, in, those, in those areas. Of course, even more clear-cut is the, the Nazi expansionism at the beginning of continental wide war um, and, of course, Japan in, in World War II at the same time invading China. But uh, perhaps surprisingly, these more modern regimes also had a uh, cult of antiquity. And, and I've mentioned uh, Hitler's uh, resort to ancient Rome as a precedent, uh, but also ancient Sparta. Um, he talked about Sparta as the first racialist state, uh, the way they um, exposed sickly children to die. Uh, he thought was a, a good way of purifying a race. And uh, the young Turks also looked back to uh, ancient Turkic uh, conquerors in the Middle Ages. Uh, the Japanese had their own cult of antiquity in World War II. They talked about uh, the uh, ancient Japanese um, uh, myths and uh, their right to uh, take over territories in, in the world that were inhabited by inferior peoples. And uh, at the same time, there was, in every case, um, uh, a strong agrarian influence, particularly in the case of the Nazis, but also the Japanese in World War II. Uh, settler colonialism, sending German settlers to Ukraine or Japanese to Manchukuo or Manchuria. Mm-hmm. Uh, the belief that the local people, whether it be Slavs, uh, whom Hitler described as a mass of born slaves who don't know how to farm properly, or the Japanese view of the Chinese as uh, inadequate farmers, that all came to justify these uh, expansionist territorial colonialist ventures mm-hmm. uh, based on uh, an, a sense of agrarian superiority. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I find this line very uh, convincing for this set of genocides, and, and uh, I mean the Armenian genocide, the uh, the uh, German uh, genocide against the, the Jews and to some extent Slavs and Gypsies and others, and then um, perhaps some of the activities of the, the Japanese during World War II. I, I do wonder, though, a skeptic might say that while it fits relatively well 
those cases that in the case of the um, what seemed to be uh, Marxist-inspired genocides, and you mentioned a couple of them, um, actually you mentioned three of them, If uh, and I'll have to ask about this, if the Cambodian one can be included, uh, and those are the Chinese under Mao and then the... Uh, the, the the Soviet under Stalin. These were done in the interest of a working class, and uh, right. very I, different. I, yeah. So, and, and there's there's a certain difference there, isn't there? I mean, again, I'm I'm asking this as a as a as a uh, um, I'm sort of playing devil's advocate here. No, I, I think yeah. I think you're right to point out the differences. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, there was no concern with uh, ancient models in the case of either Mao or Stalin. They both attempted to sweep away traditional culture. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some uh, uh, suggestions in Stalin's references, at least during the late, from the late 20s, and particularly in World War II, uh, recalling Peter the Great and Ivan the Terrible and so on, as uh, if not uh, models, at least uh, uh, rivals. And, you know, uh, Peter the Great didn't cut off enough heads and things <laughs> like that. Uh, but uh, generally, compared to the other cases we mentioned, both Stalin and Mao uh, had nothing but uh, contempt or disinterest in, in ancient models. And so I think the exception, Stalin is also uh, a strong uh, difference occurs in the case of uh, agrarianism. He was also contemptuous of the peasantry. He didn't romanticize the peasantry, even for, for propaganda purposes. Uh, very unlike the Nazis or or the Japanese in World War Two, mm -hmm. uh, Mao was a little bit more uh, decidedly more agrarian in his uh, ideology, uh, but again, uh, in in terms of um, uh, the final point, uh, expansionism, I think the uh, Stalin and Mao were were less decidedly territorial expansionists than the Nazis and the Japanese, although mm -hmm. could argue that they. Uh, held on to empires that they wanted to uh, control, and uh, and uh, they could be the Chinese, for instance, could be accused of uh, expansionism in Tibet, which was something that the Chinese army uh, took on at the very height of the Great Leap Forward in China, which was the mo most serious um, uh, massive death toll mm -hmm. in history, where. Around 30 million people died as a result of Mao's uh, uh, mismanagement and, uh, and and contempt for uh, peasant life in the, in the Chinese countryside from 1958 to 61. This was the same period as the uh, as the crackdown in, in Tibet, and uh, so I think you could make a case that expansionism was important uh, there as well. But I think the two communist giants, Stalin and Mao. Uh, are different from uh, most of the other cases of genocide. Mm -hmm. But still, the numbers that perished under those two regimes are so importantly uh, to, to discuss, and they're such important cases of mass death that I did include them in the book in mm -hmm. some detail. I mean, I think at a, at a higher level of generality, though, uh, you, you are still correct, because what really drives this is a kind of uh, us-and-them mentality where... Uh, we, that is us, are ahead of them, and ipso facto, uh, we can do with them as we will. I mean, in right. the case of, of Stalin and Mao, it happened to be uh, the bourgeoisie or some uh, regressive agrarian class. Uh, in the case of these earlier genocides, it happened to be another what they would conceive of as another race, often 
uh, either another race or, or, or let's, in the case of the, the, the Jews, uh, the urban dwellers, um, yeah. which kind of leads me naturally to a question about the Cambodian genocide, about uh, which you are the, the, uh, the world's greatest expert. How, do, how does it fit into um, into this paradigm? Because it's a, it's a I, I confess I don't quite understand what Pol Pot believed, because it was kind of a weird mix of things, wasn't it? It was. It included a Stalinist understanding of communism and a Maoist influence, which was uh, taken to extremes way beyond what Mao uh, ever did himself. And so I think in the case of agrarianism, uh, Pol Pot uh, extended and exaggerated and uh, extrapolated on the agrarian influences in Maoism, which were not there in Stalinism, uh, but uh, were certainly there in the Cambodian Genocide. So even though uh, the Pol Pot was the leader of a communist party and he drew on Stalin and Mao, uh, he added another element as well, which was uh, uh, a more traditional Cambodian racism, particularly against Vietnamese. Uh, and there had been cases in the 18th century of uh, Cambodian uh, massacres of ethnic Vietnamese, at one case ordered by the King of Cambodia in 1750, which uh, led to the killing of every single Vietnamese. Only about 20 people escaped in Cambodia uh, from that uh, uh, monarch-ordered massacre. Um, I don't think actually Pol Pot knew about this, but he was definitely uh, virulently anti-Vietnamese, uh, mm-hmm. and this can be traced from his early time as a student um, in Paris, he signed his political statement uh, in 1952, uh, the original Khmer, and by mm-hmm. that he meant the uh, the ethnic uh, original Khmer, uh, not influenced by more recent uh, uh, cultural influences, whether from Vietnam or even from Buddhism, uh, but uh, a sense of, of an ancient Khmer past, which looked in part back to the glorious medieval empire of Angkor, which built the temple Angkor Wat, and other um, vast uh, monuments left around Cambodia from uh, the medieval period. And Pol Pot uh, saw this period as, a again, a model, but also as a rival, something to be outdone, something to be to be followed, but, uh, but outdone, exceeded. And uh, Pol Pot's uh, fetish of antiquity was to be greater than Angkor and uh, that fed into a sense of ethnic Khmer purity and massacres of ethnic minorities Uh, Vietnamese were subjected to genocide Uh, Muslims of uh, the Cham ethnic group were subjected to genocide and both of those cases are now being considered by the UN uh, which has decided to prosecute leading members of the Pol Pot regime for genocide mm-hmm. in the, in those two cases. Mm-hmm. And the minorities in Cambodia suffered disproportionately. Mm-hmm. So while there was a, a recognizable elements of Stalinism and Maoism, there was also uh, agrarianism uh, and uh, cult of antiquity and indeed expansionism. The Khmer Rouge regime attacked all three of Cambodia's neighbors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thailand and Laos, uh, even, but also, in most importantly, Vietnam. The uh, Khmer Rouge forces attacked across the border, beginning, uh, especially in 1977, slaughtering people on the Vietnamese side of the border, whether they were ethnic Khmer 
minority residents of Vietnam or, or Vietnamese, and they broadcast the next year in 1978 a statement that um, there are uh, 60 million Vietnamese, and if each Cambodian who falls in battle kills 30 Vietnamese, we could lose 2 million, uh, but uh, we would still have 6 million left and all of the 50 million Vietnamese would be gone. Mm-hmm. And so they broadcast this on the uh, Phnom Penh radio under the Pol Pot regime in 1978. Again, I want to thank you for bringing uh, a certain amount of light on this, uh, and actually quite considerable light on this situation to many of us because it, it really is still kind of baffling to me. I, I, I don't I don't understand the situation very well at all. I should read up a little bit more. Let me ask you this. How does the um, uh, the genocide in the, gla- the Great Lakes District of, of Africa, that is what we all, usually call the Rwandan genocide, um, mm. how, how does it fit into this model? Um, I think fairly closely. I think despite the fact that there are differences of geography and demography between Cambodia and Rwanda, uh, there are some important similarities. Um, one of them is the, um, uh, the obviously the racial hatred against the Tutsi minority, mm-hmm. uh, a sense that the Tutsis were recent interlopers coming as recently as the 16th century yeah. uh, and uh, disturbing the pristine Hutu kingdoms of Rwanda. One of the uh, perpetrators of the genocide in Rwanda was a historian who had written about this and drawn a map of, in his, one of his books of the former Hutu kingdoms uh, which he believed needed to be uh, purified of, uh, of Tutsi influence and, and restored in that sense. And even uh, territories that once belonged to Rwanda uh, that had been um, uh, hived off and given to other countries like uh, Uganda and Congo uh, should be restored. And Tutsis in those countries uh, were killed by the same uh, Hutu killers who killed the Tutsis in Rwanda when they were driven out, mm-hmm. uh, overthrown by the resistance forces in Rwanda. They fled to Congo and began killing Tutsis in that country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is an international expansionist element in the Rwandan case, which is not very well known, but it led to the spread of the genocide to Congo. And uh, there was such uh, uh, killing in, in, uh, in Congo that has resulted from the spread of the Rwandan uh, perpetrator army into into that country and, and followed by the Rwandan government army which overthrew them and chased them into uh, Congo and has conducted its own uh, operations there that have also been very destructive and leading to a massive death toll in Congo of possibly 5 million people in the last 10 or 15 years. And of course there was a decided agrarian influence in the genocidal regime in Rwanda as well. The idea that Hutus were the real farmers of the land, the Tutsis were cattle raisers and pastoralists, as well as being interlopers, they were also uh, not proper farmers and uh, tended to be city people and better educated. And the uh, Hutu chauvinist regime uh, described the Tutsis in racist terms as cockroaches, but also in historical terms and also in agrarian terms as uh, unsuitable for Rwanda. Um, let, let's move on just a little bit uh, and talk about um, two other cases of, of possible genocide, I guess. Uh, one would be um, the, uh, uh, the, the Serbian uh, 
activities. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how to characterize them without offending anybody. Uh, and then, um, of course, what's going on in Sudan today. Why don't we start with uh, Serbia? Well, the um, genocide of uh, Bosnian Muslim men that was conducted in Srebrenica uh, has been uh, found by the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia to have been a case of genocide mm -hmm. uh, in which the uh, Bosnian Serb army uh, captured and slaughtered uh, six to 8,000 mm -hmm. Bosnian Muslims, particularly uh, basically because they were Bosnian Muslims. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other cases of smaller massacres that occurred across Bosnia and before that uh, have been described by some historians as genocide, uh, but they haven't been found uh, by a court yet uh, that uh, mm -hmm. to be cases of genocide. I think it's all part of the same picture myself, and uh, the, the legal evidence uh, does show that, uh, that the Srebrenica case was not not the only yeah. uh, genocidal outburst, but the uh, elements that went into it were not just the racial hatred of Bosnian Muslims, but also Bosnian Serb ideology and to some extent the ideology of the Serbian regime under Milosevic and others uh, did betray a uh, an agrarian romanticism mm -hmm. uh, that uh, was very virulent. In other words, the uh, Bosnian Muslims, uh, who tended to be urban, uh, were not the real Serbs who lived in the countryside mm -hmm. in Bosnia. They were also um, regarded, the cities were regarded as havens of vice and so on uh, in the Bosnian Serb ideology. Mm -hmm. And of course the ancient uh, precedent or the ancient pristine past of the Serbs was also highly uh, emphasized in their ideology that um, that they had suffered loss of land in the past since the height of Serbian influence. And they deserved to reconquer lost territories, whether it be in Croatia or Bosnia um, or um, elsewhere. And, and, of course, that spread to um, Kosovo, uh, where the Serbs were a decided minority, but... Um, led to the violence in Kosovo after um, Srebrenica. Mm -hmm. The Albanians, yes. I always enjoy it when some aspect of my relatively obscure field, which is sort of medieval and early modern um, Eastern Europe, gets some play in the press. But in the instance of the uh, lay or song of the Battle of Kosovo, I was uh, relatively upset to see uh, the way in which it had been used. This is, of course, a, a medieval epic. And usually when people talk about medieval epics, that's kind of nice. But in uh, in this instance, it was not um, because they did use it as a more or less explicit pretext uh, for uh, what they were doing in, in Kosovo. I've actually just uh, listening to you uh, determined that there is one other uh, common element in all the genocides you've uh, discussed that you were maybe you, you were just maybe too kind to um, um, to 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 uh, to mention, and that is that apparently all uh, people that commit genocide are very bad historians. <laughs> that they just really don't know have any idea what really went on in the past. 
Right, although some of them claim to be professional historians. Yeah, no, that's a, yeah, yeah. No, but yeah, I know all about that. Yeah, so that's true. So let's talk about the most controversial of these things because it's a, you know it's still in the news today, and we you know Americans wonder why aren't we doing anything about it or what you know what, who, sh- sh- should we, should we take some action? And this is what's going on today in in, in Sudan. Maybe you could just uh, talk a, a little bit about that uh, w- with reference to um, this historical record that you've uh, so well researched. Okay. Um, back in the 1980s, I think it was in 1986, a group of uh, uh, Arab intellectuals in Sudan uh, published uh, a, a statement talking about the uh, history of their presence in Sudan as a civilizing influence and their right to dominate the region of Darfur uh, and how they had established uh, um, a, a precedent back in, I think, in the 17th century. And uh, this uh, uh, statement of the Arab gathering, as it was known, uh, expressed a sort of sense of historical grievance and a sense of racial superiority towards the largely uh, African, although also Muslim, population of Darfur. And uh, that uh, Arab gathering statement was followed up in a telephone call three years later by one of the leaders, uh, one of the men who became a leader of the Janjaweed militia, the main perpetrator group, uh, 14 years later. But in a telephone call which was monitored and for which a transcript exists from 1989, uh, he, this is uh, Musa Hilal, a Janjaweed leader later, he was said, uh, quoted as saying that uh, thanking uh, somebody for supplying his group with guns quote, in order to exterminate the African tribes in Darfur. And so in, uh, we, we have evidence of intent on his part. We also have uh, evidence that could have supplied uh, incentive to act. And I'm not necessarily talking about military intervention in Sudan, but uh, intervention short of military means could well have been taken uh, to um, prevent the outbreak of, um, of such uh, massive violent persecution of African um, subjects in, in Sudan. But um, the uh, policy has not been able to stop that. The, uh, uh, the United Nations has, has not, uh, not taken sufficient action. Uh, and uh, the genocide broke, broke out in 2003 uh, with uh, large-scale attacks against the uh, Africans of, of Darfur. And uh, the uh, major perpetrators were the Sudan government and the Janjaweed militia of Musa Hilal. Uh, the International Criminal Court um, has uh, indicted uh, several of the perpetrators, uh, but nobody has yet been arrested. Uh, I think the prosecutors have... Uh, considered indicting um, a large number of other perpetrators, and I'm not sure of where that stands. The uh, the president of Sudan, however, has been indicted, and there is discussion about whether the charge of genocide will be included in that indictment or not. Uh, so I think in, in the case of Sudan, we have uh, a, a historical uh Obsession on the part of the perpetrators. Uh, there is also a, a racial element, although the populations of Arabs and Africans are very mixed and uh, both groups exist on both sides. 
but largely it is uh, several African tribes who have been the major victims in Darfur. Uh, and the uh, racial element is there, uh, even though they're all of the same uh, religious group, all Muslims. Uh, what we don't have in Darfur is a very uh, strong case of agrarian influence. In fact, the perpetrators of the uh, genocide in Darfur, the um, Janjaweed militia, uh, tend to be pastoralists. They don't uh, they don't uh, romanticise cultivators uh, who are their victims. In fact, mm -hmm. and the major impact of the genocide has been to destroy the farms and kill the farmers mm -hmm. in uh, in Darfur. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, there is an expansionist element in what's happening. The war has spread to Chad and Central African Republic. Uh, the uh, the Janjaweed militias have um, have spread their activities into those countries, uh, destabilizing them. And uh, there is an international element to the Darfur genocide, which uh, reflects the elements of uh, previous cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's... Uh very sobering stuff. I mean, it is a tragedy that the international community can't, um, as my mother would say, get its act together <laughs> to do something. Yeah, some, about some things that could have been done include no flight zones and yeah. uh, um, blockading of Port Sudan's oil exports and so on. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, this is, it's a very, very frustrating thing. Uh, at least I, I find it to be very, very mm -hmm. frustrating. Um, let me ask something that's a little bit challenging, and, and that is that. Uh, from one perspective, and this is looking over the entire history of genocide, but especially concentrating on our um, efforts to prosecute people for genocide, um, there, there's one perspective that would say that you know genocide uh, is sort of a distinction without a really important legal difference, and that is what we're really talking about here is murder, or at the most, mass murder. Um, how would you respond to that? Well, I think it's true, but... There are also legal distinctions which are important for prevention. Um, mass murder can be prosecuted under the Crimes Against Humanity rubric, including extermination. Uh, genocide is those cases where it can also be proved that there was an intent to destroy a group in whole or in part, and these are ethnic, national, racial or religious groups. And some people will say it's equally heinous to destroy a political group or a social group, uh, whether it be a, an entire political party, which has happened in Colombia in recent times. The uh, Union Patriotica is a political party whose members were all massacred. Uh, the um, uh, social groups, Stalin's uh, destruction of the Kulaks, for instance, in the 1930s, uh, not an ethnic group, not covered perhaps by the Genocide Convention, but certainly a case of mass murder uh, that uh, many will consider just as heinous as destroying an ethnic or religious group. However, I think there is a point that the Genocide Convention uh, includes, which is that it is even more serious to destroy people because of their membership in a group in which they had no choice in belonging to. They're born into an ethnic or religious group. Uh, it's much more uh, uh, understandable, that I think, that uh, that killing people purely because of what they are, rather than a choice that they might make as an adult, 
say, to join a political party um, is even more heinous than that. And of course, it's everybody's democratic right to make choices about their political affiliations. And uh, mass murder political groups should be prosecuted as extermination and a crime against humanity. But I think there is a point that uh, genocide uh, targets uh, those who do something that somehow is even worse than that. Mm-hmm. No, I mean I find that I find that compelling. I just wanted to uh, make sure that our listeners and I, I wanted to hear it too. The, the kind of logic behind this, you know, it's similar in a way to what people say uh, sometimes about uh, hate crime legislation. Uh, they will say that really the the underlying crime is what should be prosecuted, not the intent. We, we shouldn't try to read people's minds. But I think there's also a good argument about hate crime legislation that says that. Uh, you know, the thing you're really trying to prevent is a sort of terrorism, and that's what hate crime does, and it is different than just simple murder. So, I mean, I, I find I find what you said uh, compelling, um, and I think most of our listeners will as well. Uh, let me thank you very much. We've taken up a huge amount of your time. I'm, I'm sorry we've gone. I, I always, these are supposed to be an hour, but I, I get talking to you guys, and I just can't stop. Um, so uh, I want to thank you very much for being on the show, and I want to ask you our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, uh, what is your next project? What are you working on now? I'm working on a history of uh, Vietnam from earliest times to the present. Um, I've uh, been working on it for a while now and uh, have uh, covered uh, nearly two millennia. I'm up to the ninth century and uh, uh, one millennium to go. (laughs) Very, you know, that's a sentence that very few people get to utter. (laughs) <laughs> one millennium to go and have it make any sense at all. So I'd be proud of that. Well, you know, we've talked to, about Vietnamese history quite a bit on this show. We've had, uh, I remember James uh, Wilbanks, he's a, uh, he's a historian of the, of the Vietnamese War, and we had Mark Bradley and Marilyn Young. So when you're done with that book, we'll continue our series on uh, Vietnamese history. And I, I hope that you'll... Uh, You'll grace us with your presence to, to talk I'll about the delighted. Book. Thank All you. Right. Well, uh, Ben, I want to thank you again for being on this show. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Marshall. Uh, okay. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Ben Kiernan about his book, Blood and Soil, A World History of Genocide and Extermination from Sparta to Darfur. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope that you have a great week.